<laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is your host, Tom Alemo. They call me Tommy Tahoe around here. Uh, super excited to bring you another episode. We've got three weeks left in December, three weeks left to hit your number, to get those deals closed, to get your Christmas shop and everything that you need to get done uh, in Concord. So uh, my hat is off to everyone that's out there grinding, uh, wishing everyone luck, sending positive vibes uh, for those bluebirds, those last minute deals, for those procurement people that they get the deal done this week instead of next week, instead of you know, having to wait till New Year's at 9 p.m. like I was doing last year. So um, I want to just get straight into today's show. Uh, episode 187, we've got Richard Harris uh, joining the show uh, today for an interview. And um, so let's talk about it for a second. You know, uh, as crazy of a year as 2020 has been for all of us, right, uh, in so many different ways, we all have bright spots. And you may have to look harder than others to find what those bright spots are personally and professionally. And professionally, meeting Richard Harris is absolutely a bright spot for me. And it happened from just a cold email that I sent him earlier this year. We started a conversation, which turned into running the Millennial X Coffee Talk, which was a weekly live conversation that we had every single week. Um, for a few months, we had a lot of different guest hosts. You know, we talked about personal branding, we talked about sales, but more importantly, we talked about bigger issues. Um, you know, social justice issues, mental health issues, things like that. Um, that you know was really a highlight of my year to be able to talk about a lot of those things and learn about a lot of those things from people much smarter than myself. So, you know, my hats off to Richard. You know, I've really enjoyed getting to know him and meet him, um, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. We talk about a few different things, right? Uh, we talk about Richard's story, uh, his career arc and trajectory, like we get into with most of the guests and, uh, you know, how he got into tech sales and, and grew. And we talk about how he opened up Richard Harris Consulting Group about uh, you know, seven or eight years ago. You know, he met Nick Maida, who is the founder of Gainsight on a flight. Um, and that really kind of opened up his shop, opened up the doors for his business and probably changed his life. Um we talk about how he started off his career at The Gap, and I guess how The Gap was cool in the 90s, so I interrogate him a little bit about that, and uh, you might even relate to Richard's battle with mental health and depression. He's very open and honest about talking about that, and we get into that too, and his personal story of his struggles and how that dates back to when he was in his 20s and you know has continued over time um, now and how he's dealt with that and, and worked through a lot of things. So um, that's what we talk about. If you don't know Richard, I mean, the guy is, you know, he's clearly one of the biggest names in B2B sales. He's uh, spent, you know, over two decades in uh, sales across, you know, different, you know, from retail to, you know, advertising to uh, tech to consulting now. Um, he's working with some of the fastest growing companies in his consulting business like Zoom, Google, Visa, Intercom, Salesloft. The list goes on and on. He's a five time top 25 most influential inside sales professional. He was named a two-time sales development thought leader of the year. Uh, he's a friend of mine. I think really going to enjoy this episode. One quick note that if you do enjoy it, the way that you can help this podcast and help this show to grow is by heading over to Apple, subscribing, and leaving a review, a five-star review. It'll take you two minutes. 
Uh, if you're listening on Spotify, you can subscribe. If you're watching here on YouTube, hello, you can subscribe there as well. That helps us to spread the show. It helps me to get better guests. Uh, it helps more listeners to be affected and impacted by the show. So I'd really appreciate if you uh, showed some love. Uh, you can hit me up on social media, Tommy Tahoe on Twitter and Instagram. Find me on LinkedIn. There's a lot of ways you can connect with me. I'd love to chat with you. Um, and then go hit up Richard. Uh, you know, he's you know, probably best platform here is, is on LinkedIn, but he's Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, and, you know, Richard Harris or R. Harris 415. So uh, that's the quick ad, you know, just by me. Uh, otherwise, let's get into this conversation with my good friend, Richard Harris. Let's go. Richard Harris. Early morning podcast. Good morning. Good morning, man. Good to see you. Good to yeah, see you. Good, good to see you too. Just just like old times, we got our coffee. It's still yes. dark outside. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Coffee talk 2.0. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks for uh, for joining the show. Everyone is is excited to uh, to be listening to you, and I'm excited to be talking with you. I, well, it's always fun talking to you, Tom. So what can I where do we start today, my friend? <laughs> I want to start at the what I believe is the start of your sales career. And there's a lot of things that we want to talk about, but, and there's a lot of ways you can start a sales career, but I don't know too many people that started a gap. Uh, yeah. So I, I want to get into, you know, the 22 year old Richard Harris that was working at gap for a few years and, and how that kicked off your sales career. So we'll back up a little bit. That was actually my first part-time job in high school. So when, oh, back okay. when I was 16, and, um, you know, granted, this is the 80s. So the gap was where you got your clothes and you got a good discount. And, you know, it was cool, right? Yeah. Um, it was the mall, right? Like I worked at the mall, uh, which was cool back then. And I worked at a cool store in the mall, um, just like Fast Times or Richmond High. Um, <laughs> I was at the cool end of the mall. Um, so it started there, but it, it certainly laid in a way for me of like, um, okay, you can be in business which I knew I wanted to do. I could wear jeans and t-shirts because I was always a rebel. There's all these stories about me not wearing socks and getting in trouble on school trips for not wearing <laughs> socks to, the, to watch the United States Supreme Court. Um, so there were all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but so it, it sort of fit that rebellious streak in me. Um, and then of course, you know, I, I have an uncle who, who, you know, was like, that's a really good first job. It's like, everybody's gonna know that logo. Like, it doesn't matter where you go in your life. It was a good logo. And I was like, all right, that makes sense. And so then I got out of college and, you know, let's remember that I was probably closer to 23 because I took an extra year in college. Um, Cause that's what you just did. If you went to the university of Arizona um, to, to party a little more or what, <laughs> I mean, you, know, you know, I just didn't, you know, I, I, let's just say I, I made sure that college didn't get in the way of my education. Just <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it was also it was also a recession at that time. It was under Bush one, um, and the first Iraq Desert Storm had started. I want to say my senior year, somewhere around there, like ninety one, ninety two. And so um, there was no reason. I, I kind of felt like, why do I need to get out of college? Like, you know. And and you look, know, knock on wood, you know, I had a I had a grandmother who left money for me to go to college, so it was not hurting my family. And I know there's a lot of people where it's like it's a struggle, so. You know, I'm not making light of like, oh, you can just go do this. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. And it's financially hard and financially harder now than it was then. 
Anyway, so didn't work at all through college. Then my last semester, I decided to go work for the Gap because I thought, oh, you know, I need to go get something on my resume. <laughs> so yeah, senior went to work and I sucked at it. Like I, I took it for granted. They knew I wanted to get promoted into management. They knew that this was what I was going to try and do, but I didn't do any of the hard work. I didn't like, you literally had to like memorize all the colors, right? The different shades of periwinkle and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And there was these coral colors one year and I just didn't take it seriously to like know my product knowledge, to know the colors. And so, you know, I thought I was, I thought this was it. Like, you know, I, I got, and I got let go. And I was shocked. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked. And, uh, and so I worked my way back in, I negotiated my way back in, sort of went in as on call, got called in a couple of times, would go in early, stay late, which obviously was illegal uh, in terms of you know, an hourly employee, but that's sort of what was expected. Um, and so I really cut my teeth and grinded hard for a few months. And then finally a, a Gap Kids store opened up. So you gotta keep in mind that you know, for your generation, they were everywhere. You know, I worked in a district that was all of Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. And those four states, we had the first four Gap kids in the nation, like four. Hmm. And so for me, it was like, oh, this is brilliant, right? Like you go, you, that's your startup, right? So I got to yeah. open a store at the age of 22. Hmm. Um, I used to tell the story all the time of like, I conducted like, 60 interviews in two days each one was like 15 minutes long to recruit the staff I wasn't even the store manager the store manager hadn't even been hired at that point so I was sort of you know getting shit built and all these kinds of things so I was you know it was a great crash course in early management and process and taking your job seriously and working hard and creating that work ethic that I think um, I needed a kick in the pants for like I was you know you know, everybody wants to say the millennials are entitled. Please, Gen X was just as entitled. Like, don't don't give me that shit. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that that's the that's the I'll call that the short version. So if you know. Yeah, but it, that's got to give you kind of mature you a little bit at an early age, right? You come from an extra year of school. Maybe that was schoolwork. Maybe that was partying. Who knows? We're yeah. not going to, we're not going to interrogate you on that, but then you go into, you can, into no, gap. No, I'm happy to go there. Like, and then, you, <laughs> then you get into the gap though. And you, you get let go, you kind of negotiate your way back in. And then all of a sudden you're opening up a store at the age of probably 23, 24. Right. Um, and, and interviewing people, that's a lot of responsibility for someone that age. It is, you know, and that's, that's the good thing about going to, well, one, I think it's a good thing about retail is that um, the process is already built. You know, it's, it's not like you having to figure out every little thing and they would tell you, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this. Um, and you also got to understand merchandising, which was a little bit of a marketing play and all those things. So it's, it's a great training ground for all that. I, I, I cannot speak to it highly enough. And granted, the world has changed in terms of retail and online, you know, but it was the ultimate inbound lead right? Mm -hmm. um, at one of the most popular companies in the, in the world at that point. So, yeah. And then you, at some point you, you pivoted and went over to like media sales, wasn't mm -hmm. it like newspaper ads and mm -hmm. you were like the guy in, in <laughs> Arizona that just, you know, knew everyone at the different 
nightclubs and bars because you were doing some of the ads. Uh, it was, and things like it was that. actually Denver. Um, oh, Denver. Yeah, Denver. You're correct. Yeah. That's the correct story. I, what happened when I was at The Gap was that I'd always wanted to go to Colorado. Um, I'd been in college um, for, you know, again, for our fraternity national convention in Vail. So, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing how privileged I was, then, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and I'd never been to Colorado in the summer, but I'd been in the wintertime and I loved skiing. And I was like, oh my God, like I got to move here. So, you know, that whole thing when I was saying earlier that Gap Kids had four stores, well, you know, two of them were in Colorado. So I moved to Colorado. I got transferred within the district, right? So I went through that process, which was again, another learning process. Um, picking up and moving your life for a job or a career to a place where you only know one or two people. So again, so I got there, then I got burned out on retail. Um, retail has a lot of great aspects to it, but you can get burned out on it, you know, um, weekends and holidays and all that kind of stuff, but it was still fun. Um, so then, yes, yeah, so then I went into the newspaper ads and got to know all the cool bars and clubs in Denver and could, you know, as cocky as this sounds, flash my business card and get in anywhere, not have to stand in line kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, I can't fault the way the world was working at that stage. So it was fun. What, what was it about that role when that made you successful? Like, what were you doing out of the ordinary that made you really good at that job? Um, a couple things. So one, um, it what I, one of the things was I liked it. So it was working for the weekly newspaper. Every every town, every city still has them. And in that time, they were called the alternative, right? But there was not right, alt, left, alt, like not that kind of alternative. It was just like, it wasn't the daily newspaper. This was the weekly paper, right? This was the cool paper that had the longer stories that read more like a Time or a Newsweek article. Um, it had, you know, different kind of restaurant reviews. It had special editions. It had um, um, just, you know, what bars were happening. And if you were looking to see, you know, what bands were playing, it listed every band at every bar and every club in town, because that's where you got. It came out on Wednesdays, so you could plan your Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, so it was, the, it was the social media of the time. Um, and, you know, this was even pre-internet. I remember when we first built the web pages for those pages for those companies and there they would be a joke now but they that was what it was like that was all it was the, the problem was the people hadn't shifted to online for research it was crazy um anyway so so because of the stories we wrote the and they they wrote about you know the weird neighbor who like has all the keep out signs on his yard and you're like who is that person or <laughs> you'd read about the school district or you'd read about, um, um, you know, I was in Denver at the time. So you'd read about John Elway's car dealership deal that the mainstream media wouldn't cover. Well, it's not that they wouldn't cover. I, I would say that it was just too deep. It was too big of a story, too long to narrate where we could mm -hmm. narrate those stories. Right. And so they were slightly controversial. Right. So that was again, fitting my rebellious streak of like at the gap of like jeans and t-shirts. So, that's why I liked it. I also liked selling um, classified ads. So these were the ads. These were the apartments for rent ads. These were, um, which was a big piece of our business. These were the help wanted ads. These were the things that, you know, that were, that people looked at the back of a newspaper for. Um, we sold the back page of the, of the paper and 
and yes, we sold the adult section of the paper. So I was, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the pimp's pimp. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's a different world now. You know, I understand, yeah. and, and, you know, I was 23 at the time. So what did I really know and or care about, which was not. Yeah. Um, but that was my reality. So, it, and I liked that versus what was called retail sales, which was the front of the book, which was the bars and the clubs and the clothing stores. Cause I was in inside sales. Like I hated getting in the car. I did one year of outside sales there and I hated it cause it was like massively inefficient. So keep in mind, this is 92, 93 and I'm already addicted to inside sales and everybody was calling us telesales and, you know, telemarketing. And, you know, we, mm. we were always treated as the, as that, you know, that stepchild of the, you know, the unloved stepchild, I would say there's a lot of, you know, grateful families out there, but there's, there's, you know, it was the one who sort of was treated like the kid bounced from foster home to foster home. That's how we were treated within the organization. <clears throat> and I stood up against that within the own organization. And I, I sort of had a special year around it so I could make it happen. Um, and yet we were the most profitable part of the paper, but we sort of got treated like shit. <laughs> um, so that was sort of an interesting philosophy. And so I worked there for six years, maybe seven years. I didn't think I'd go anywhere. Um, from there, because I thought it was the coolest place to be. And then came the internet, right? Then came Craigslist. Yeah. And so it really started to hurt us. And, and that's where things shifted. You seem like, and then, you know, as we carry on, I, I know that I think your mom is a, a stockbroker in finance mm-hmm. and she kind of like, kind of flipped your idea yeah, to, hey, maybe you should, stories, you, should, yeah. you should get it. You should get into this internet thing. It, it feels like you are you know, early in your career, you were like one step ahead of the game or you were like going with where the world was going, you know, Gap when it first started was I'm sure, you know, maybe equivalent to a major new brand, like, I don't know, Lululemon or something that's, that's kind of taken people by a craze um, over to what you were doing at the newspaper and then getting into tech early per I didn't get into tech early. That was, that was my mistake. So this is, this is where I differentiate from the millennials, right? My mom called me in the 70s, in, sorry, in the, in the late 90s, it was 97, I think. And she called me and she was a broker and she said, you know, there's this cool company in California that, you know, they maybe have just gone public and it looks like they're making money from selling classified ads, like little ads. And I'm like, yeah, what is it? And she's like, you know, you should talk to your uncle. It's in San Francisco, near San Francisco. And, and she said, well, you know, it's this company called Yahoo. And I was like, yeah, I'm not moving to California for that. Like, and, and it wasn't that I wasn't moving to California, which is where I am now for that. It was, it was 100% that I'm not going to listen to my mother. Like I'm not <laughs> going to take career advice from my mom. Um, and, and there was, I think there's even, a, I don't think I've told this story. There was a time when she was working for a brokerage house and I was 16, 17, 18. And I wanted to, go into like their training program they had for kids, like the intern summer internship. And she told me she wouldn't pull strings for me, right? Even though we knew the guy who was in charge of it, she wasn't gonna pull that string. So of course I got into the, I was like the second alternate. I was like, not even the alternate, I was the second alternate, right? Like, <laughs> you know, well, hey, you know, it's, it's like you won the NIT tournament in basketball. It means you're the 65th best team in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not even that, I made it to the finals, but I didn't even win the NIT. And uh, and I think there was probably some rebellious to that of like, I'm not going to take your advice because you didn't help me. 
I don't even know if it was conscious that I was doing it, but as I think about it, I've never thought about it until this moment in the way you're asking, but there's probably some of that rebelliousness in me from there. Um, and that's why I didn't take that advice 100% because my mom told me to do it and suggested I do it. She didn't even tell me. She was like, you should go look at, you know, she was just trying to be a good mom. Yeah. And like I my mom it. always says, M.A., whenever she, she gives me advice and I take it or don't take it, and it turns out to be right, she always texts me, M.A.R., mom's always right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Thank God. I didn't that. Oh, I mean, you know, like I remember when Kathy and I got married, like literally the week we got married in 2007, the iPhone came out, like literally. And then like six months later, my mom joined Facebook and I like freaked out when my mom was friending me on Facebook. And I don't know, did you, was it like natural for you to have your mom as a friend on Facebook? Uh, it, it was, uh, but I didn't in like probably college cause I had pictures of, you know, drinking and stuff like that. But something that would happen actually is my dad, shout out to my dad who is probably listening and he joined our coffee talks earlier this year. Right, He did. Yes. He would, he would, uh, he would follow he's a big Twitter guy. And so he probably follows you and maybe has interacted with you. He would, he would do that on occasion in college. And like, if he met my friends, he'd then follow them on Twitter and we have the same name and I'm in his profile picture. So sometimes people would come up to me and be like, Hey, you're, you're hilarious on Twitter. I'm like, I don't, I don't follow you or anything. They're like, Oh yeah, that's, I'm like, that's my dad. So he would be like making friends with people on Twitter that I didn't even know at college. That's hilarious. (laughs) that's super hilarious um we may lose me in a second because my internet says my internet's unstable but that's unbelievable because i'm plugged into the i'm plugged into the ethernet so anyway but yeah your dad's hilarious so but did it bother (laughs) you did it bother you that you were connected um maybe like there's definitely a phase where i was like I don't want to be friends with you on Facebook and all that stuff. And then at some point you're like, all right, you kind of get over it. And you get to this point where you see like, sometimes your parents maybe become like, they're still your parents, but you start to see that they're just like other people, you know, they're just like an adult, just like anyone else's. And then you're like, oh yeah, it's fine. They, you know, like they went to college and they did stuff and like, you know, they're just normal people. Yeah. No, I still print <laughs> my mom comments on my page. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my mom if she's listening, although she can't figure out how to download a podcast. So, <laughs> and I probably refuse to help her. So, um, and I do love my mom for all the for all the joking going on. Know, know that this is the inside joke um, with absolutely and my parents. And I, I have, and it's been you know very well known that I have a two state buffer rule between me and any immediate family since <laughs> since I was the first one to leave Georgia. I told everybody they cannot move unless they're two states away. So. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so, but anyway, I, I, let's digress out of that. But that's, it's funny. Like I, you know, this is that generational stuff that I like to hear because like you just said, you know, they're an adult just like anybody else and they're a human. And I'm like, yeah, but they're also my mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, um, so anyway. So, so, um, so I know, you know, you kind of wrote the wave, um, you know, into technology and then at some point, this is a vague memory of a story, but uh, in talking about how you kind of founded Richard Harris Consulting and went out on your own, didn't you meet Nick Meta from Gainsight just on a flight and that's how this happened? Or, or can you tell, elaborate on that little, story a little so, bit, jog my memory? Yeah, so the story goes back to Scott Lee's hiring me. Shout um, out to Scott. Yeah, and um, 
And it was 2008 where I had been a VP of sales and I went all the way to a sales manager role. I took two steps down and I was just managing a sales team. And I, you know, I just bought a house and had a baby. And so it was just like, I need a job. Like I got to have a job. And I, I, I was 38 or 39 and I was feeling the age thing, which in hindsight now is a joke, but, um, but anyway, so that, so then. Meaning, you know, sorry, meaning that you like were not getting jobs because of your age or you were feeling the pressure? I was feeling the pressure thinking I was going to be too old to get started in the startup world. Okay. That was my concern, right? Um, and I'd always played it a little safer, um, but I needed a job and Scott saw me and took a risk on me. The funny part of that story is that apparently I had, and we got, we got met, we, sorry, we met each other through an introduction of a, of a former rep of mine. And we later found out about a year and a half or two years ago that I wouldn't interview Scott back in that time when I had a job and he was looking. So <laughs> it's hilarious. So, um, so anyhow, we, so he, he hired me, that job worked out for about 18 months. And then I bounced around a couple other technology companies and, and different types of things. I ran an, in, I ran a old fashioned call center for a little while, legitimately call center selling the newspaper. Um, Cause again, I needed a job and then fell into some, some startup stuff. And that worked out really well. I worked for a company called Mashery that managed APIs. So this is like 2011 and 12 when API, people didn't understand APIs. Like you just didn't know what they, under, you know, now it's kind of like, you need to know what an API is, um, but they didn't even know the simplest terms. And so I built an SDR team in 2011 and 12. I did decently well. We, we hired them remotely. Uh, which was an interesting experience for me. And then about some eight, nine months later, they hired someone locally in Boston to run that team because I'd already built it. I moved into sales operations. I was okay at it. I have an operational mind. I like it, but I don't have the math behind it. Like I don't like to sit and dig hard into the math mm -hmm. as much as I like the process side of it. And so, um, and so that didn't quite work out the way they wanted or I wanted. And so, the, you know, Mashery was going to go under an acquisition and, and I was not going to make the cut. It was with Intel and they didn't need another sales ops person, not to mention one who was mediocre at best. And so they hugged me out the door. I bounced around trying to interview and I interviewed great. I interviewed and I would get to like the fourth or fifth or sixth round interview with some amazing companies, but I could never get the job. And I can tell you the reason was they were hiring for someone to build an SDR team and I kept getting stumped and it took me a while to realize it that, you know, where do you want to be in five years? And I would say, oh, I want to have your job, VP of sales or um, running an outside team or something like that. When the right answer would have been, well, I want to turn this into a global operation. I want to take the BDRs to that level. And I think that, I think the way I was presenting it was one, it might've been an threatening or intimidating because um, I didn't say it the right way. Like I wasn't versed well to say, I want your job. And even then, I don't think people understood the BDR role to go global. And if they did, they weren't able to express it. Like I could, because I would ask like, what are the job growth opportunities? And well, you know, you could move into this and move into and they say, well, what do you want to do in five years? And so there was this disconnect that I think people just didn't understand this is 2012. There weren't a lot of global SDR companies at that point. So then a few months later after that, and Mashery took care of me, they did a really nice job of hugging me out the doors, I like to say, and, and made sure that 
you know, I had healthcare and a lot of runway for, I want to say close to 90 days of, of salary. And, you know, that's just unheard of. Um, mm. And so you, you take that uh, when, when they come along and they say, this is how we're going to end it. Um, and it was still painful, but Scott had introduced me to another guy in Austin and he got, that guy called me a year later and said, can you help with this? And I said, sure. And next thing I knew I had a, you know, a consulting business, so to speak, and was flying in and out of Austin for a month to build a process and a team. And in my first week flying home, I, to your point, yes, long story, I sat next to Nick Maida at Gainsight when they were 15 employees. And he and I just chatted it up for like two plus hours on the airplane. And next thing I knew, I had a second client. Mind you, I had, um, I was using a Yahoo email address. Like I didn't even have a business. I didn't have a website. I had nothing. Like yeah. I was just, I was, you know, going down the traditional startup selling vapor and just selling myself. And, um, and then after that, I was, so in 60 days, I was making six months salary. And I looked at Kathy, my wife, and we were like, what is going on here? Like, you know, one door closes, another door opens, picked up the phone and called my friend, John Barrows. And, and I'd gotten to know him through his training, but stayed in touch with him. And he's like, Richard, this doesn't happen this way. Like, yeah, you, the world is telling you something. So I went and created a validation website, like five pages, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I had two customer stories already, right? To validate who I was. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where it started. Like, that's how I became a consultant. Like I was never a plan. And it yeah. really just turned into the right thing for me and my wife and my lifestyle. And it's been wonderful, right? Um, had ups and downs. I've had trials and tribulations and but we've, we've gotten very comfortable to the fact that there's always more business out there that, that even if there's a lull, we know the business is going to show up. So we're never that concerned about it. Um, even through COVID, we figured out how to do things. And, and that's, you know, that, that's been perseverance and understanding and reinventing yourself and reinventing your program and, your, and you know, um, being able to leverage what you've accomplished to continue going forward. So that's, so that's the story. Yeah. So it, it's got to be safe to say that from that moment forward, you always talk to whoever's next to you on an airplane because you never know who it's going to be. There's definitely some stories like that. Um, I've been known <laughs> to pull out my laptop and like um, literally just show that I'm logging into Salesforce or I'll go check out my website knowing that someone yeah. look at my website and I'll sort of, I'll try to bait the conversation I'm not the guy who sits down and talks to everybody every all the time. That was my mom, right? Like it was like yeah. going to the grocery store <laughs> with my mom. Like she knew everybody. It was like, this is the, you know, a 20 minute visit turned into an hour ordeal because she had to yeah. with everybody. And she's still that way. She's still the one who gets on the plane. She comes out and you know, I sat next to this guy and, you know, he was really fascinating. <laughs> you know, he works in San Jose. Do you know him? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think there's a little bit of that in me. And, and again, so anyway, so I'll, I'll try to sort of bait the conversation a little bit. Um, but I also don't go look for it because a lot of times I get on a plane and I'm, I'm, I either need to focus on what I'm doing or I just came from doing a gig when I was on the plane before COVID yeah. and I'm exhausted. I don't really want to talk to anybody. So, but it can go both yeah. ways. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you talked about that you've been able to adjust with COVID and, and really no matter what that, you know, your consulting business matches the lifestyle that you and your family want to have. And part of your 
I don't want to say shtick, but what I think you're known for and something that I, you know, admire that you do is really talk about mental health a lot. And Mm -hmm. um, I've heard you talk about it. I've I've read your writing about it, but I don't know that much about your personal story with mental Mm -hmm. health. Um, So I'd I'd love to maybe dive into that. At at what point did you start struggling? Was it um, during anything that we've talked about so far? Has it always been an issue? Is this a newer thing? um, I mean, I've, you know, through a lot of therapy, which I highly recommend, you know, my, I can recognize my depression all the way back to when I was a kid. Like I, I now can't, oh, wow. I couldn't at the point, at that point. Okay. And even in my closest conversations with friends through high school and, and college and afterwards, you know, living in different cities, I could be having this conversation with you. And right now it's very normal. Like it's natural. I'm connected to you. But many times I could, I would feel as if you and I are having this conversation, except I'm watching myself have this conversation. There was this disconnect because I didn't want to get close or intimate with someone with a real conversation when I was very good at faking it, right? And masking it might be the best term, which I think a lot of people um, who, who struggle with, with mental health and, and depression, and you know, again, this is my experience, so everybody has their own. Um, but that's what it felt like for me. And, um, and at some point long before all these jobs, and when I was working for the newspaper and we were grinding, we were, you know, I would grind 12 hours a day and then we'd go out and drink. And, you know, here I am in San Francisco. I live in Pacific Heights, which is one of the nicest neighborhoods. I'm single. I can afford my own apartment without a roommate in San Francisco, unheard of. And so sort of on paper, you know, as I was you know trying to date and stuff, I, I was a good catch, you know, like it, it made yeah. sense. I was making good money, but I had no game. Right. And, you know, and, and look, I, I'm supportive of all lifestyles. Like I get it, but as the sales mind, I'm like, you know, statistically, <laughs> operationally, I should be, you know, you yeah. know in the hunt for right. finding someone to date and finding a girlfriend and, you know, I, I put some arbitrary number of 27 as the year I needed to be in my final relationship, not married, but sort of working to that. And here I was 31 and that wasn't happening and was feeling old um, and, and was not, right, again, in hindsight. And so I woke up one day just literally frozen in my bed. I could not get up. Like literally my muscles wouldn't move. And I sort of struggled and reached for the phone and called my mom and we, you know, you know, she was trying to get me to come home. And I'm like, I'm not coming home. I said, if, you know, if I come home, then the city wins. And meaning the San Francisco, meaning I couldn't cut it. And I just couldn't do that. And, uh, and so she helped find a therapist for me through a friend of a friend. And um, that's still my therapist today. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, that's where it really happened for me. And I became much more open about it probably two or three years ago, I never shied away from it. You know, as I dated, I would, you know, I would let, you know, whoever I was dating know that, you know, at at the right time, certainly not the first date. Right. Um, But like, oh yeah, I I go see a therapist. And it was interesting because most women, like, I don't know of any woman who thought bad of it. I don't think anybody, you know, sort of, or they didn't tell me that, you know, they were, they were not going to see me anymore because of that. Um, because it showed that I was trying to get my shit together, right? Like that's what everybody wants. Everybody, nobody wants a drama person. And believe me, men can be just as dramatic as any other gender um, or 
or identity of, of being white because we're just humans. So anyway, so that that's where it all started. Um, and I worked through a lot of shit. I worked through my mom's stuff. I worked through my dad's stuff. It still comes up. Like even as you hear me talk about my mom and like you can sit down and you can go, wow, that's kind of funny about how he sees his mom. I feel, but, but underneath all that humor, there's angst, sometimes anger or belief that there's not enough love. So you create this, this survival mechanism. That's what I did. And, you know, so you still have to unpack all that, right? The sarcasm's funny, but you know, under the sarcasm, there's usually a lot of anger or sadness even, even below the anger, it's sadness because you didn't feel like you were getting what you wanted. And believe me, I did not come from a, I mean, my parents got divorced, but it was never dirty or nasty. They lived in the same town. There were never custody issues. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in what the experience I had to go through, yet you still carry your own baggage, right? So, so anyway, so mental health has become a big thing. And then I think sales pressure was really hard. Um, and, you know, but I was sort of, I'm one of the rare breeds, I think, where I sort of knew I was going to go into business and management, which meant sales. Um, but then you put the pressure of crushing the number and it ends up crushing you. And so that's, again, longer story than I don't know if that's what you wanted, but you know, that is, that is my mental health journey or a piece of it. And then I started talking about it a couple of years ago through this organization called Uncrushed. And I now call, you know, my depression, my superpower. Um, I still have moments for whatever reason, February to March seems to be my time of like sadness. Um, mm. And again, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I don't have a depression towards suicide or hurting myself or others. Um, in that regard, you know, you know, I, at the worst, I probably just drank too much. Um, you know, I was never a big weed guy, uh, as an adult, probably more so in high school and college. Um, but you know, I never went down darker paths than that. And so in many ways, I'm, I'm lucky. Like there are plenty of people I know who have substance abuse issues or, uh, eating disorders or, you know, all kinds of different things, you know, suicide. And I just never got to that stage. So, so like I said, I'm, I'm lucky in what I did and I had the means to do something about it. And I was also able to recognize that I wanted to do something about it. So yeah, those are, those are my thoughts and concerns around it all. And, and I encourage everybody to go out and talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, um, and I haven't really spoken too much publicly about this, but you, you know, we had a session of the coffee talk earlier this year where we were talking about mental health. We might've even done it more than once. Uh, and you and Galem, you know, stepped up to the plate and we're talking about going to therapy and, and, and whatnot and, um, and all the different practices you do. And, um, you know, I felt burnt out, like burnt out from sales. I have a tendency to put as much on my plate you know, put as much on, on the back until the back breaks, so to speak, and then feel, feel right. terrible. Um, but you know, I started going to therapy earlier this year, a few months ago, and it was, uh, and it was, I mean, it's been life-changing truthfully. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, has helped me just get through a lot of just different points. Cause like you mentioned, we all have our, our baggage, whether it's our parents or this made up age that you had in your mind about when you needed to get serious with someone. I think that's a pretty common thing that people think, um, or whatever, you know, whether it's sales or whatever it is, um, that just really helps. Um, and it's, it's just like, you know, I think about it, like, 
Um, you know, I'm a tennis guy and like Roger Federer, Serena Williams, two of the best ever. Like they have a, they have coaches, you know, they have a nutrition coach, they have a strategy coach, they have a, like a sports psychologist or a mental coach. Mm -hmm. They have all these different coaches. It's like, well, we need that too. We, you know, I'm not, I'm not better at uh, anything than, you know, Roger Federer is at tennis. So it's like, I need all the help I can get in certain areas. So I think it's just kind of flipping that stigma. It sounds like maybe that wasn't as much of a stigma as I thought um, back in the day. It sounded like people were pretty accepting when you told them, but mm -hmm. uh, flipping the stigma that not only is it okay, not only is it healthy, but it's actually, to your point, it could be a superpower. You kind of flipped it on its head and that's like a huge advantage for you now. Mm -hmm. Completely. Um, and I think that's super important is that it's not a big deal. You know, many people talk about going to confessional, right? If you're, if you're Catholic um, or just having a close relationship with your clergy or a best friend that you can confide all these stories in, or even a diary, right? Or a log, that's all therapy. Like that's, that's just different forms. Um, and to a certain extent, they don't cost anything, right? Like they're from a financial perspective. Is it always the right thing for you? I don't know. Like everybody's got to find their own journey and their, go through their own path on it. But I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you did it. And uh, let me ask you a question. What have you learned so far about yourself? What, is, what, is, what have you started to uncover more than the I'm a big tennis guy? Because it goes way deeper than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, it was it was the it's the awareness of feelings, right? So I'm not someone that, you know, typically my natural nature, you know, nature is not to share my thoughts and feelings. I'm Irish. I bottle things up. That's just kind of like been my go-to boo for, you know, 27 mm -hmm. years. Um, and a lot of this came from, you know, stemmed from you know, anxiety. Some of it is, is work related, but some of it is, you know, relationship related. And, you know, I'm mm -hmm. getting more serious, uh, in my relationship and my parents are divorced, similar to you. Very, uh, uh, what's it called? You know, very good relationship there, you know, cordial, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, but still, you know, that's, that's kind of something that's a scar that's there. So for me, um, I think part of it was like, you know, I, I know that I, I think about some of these things. I know I kind of get anxious about some of these things, but why? And like, why is that happening? And then trying to be aware when it happens so that I can just understand, say like, instead of just like, you know, my, my blood getting hot, I get sweaty, my test, my chest gets tight and just like going down a rabbit hole. I've kind of started to, I'm early this process, but started to just say, Oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm starting to feel that way. Oh, like, you know, let's just acknowledge that. And then, Hey, maybe it's, maybe it's good to just take a walk for a second before we do anything crazy, before we just keep going down this rabbit hole of destruction. Uh, maybe it's good to just take a breath, take a step back, grab a glass of water, whatever it might be. And so for me, I think that's been a huge thing of just trying to like have the awareness of, of what's going on in my head at a given point, if I'm starting to feel anxious or sad or whatever it is good i'm glad to hear you doing that and that's just to your point it's about the awareness right that's the basics of it yeah so I, I totally get it totally get it is there um i want to at maybe in a minute get a little bit more uh back to tactical sales stuff but i'm i'm genuinely interested in this is there you know outside of i think it's amazing you've been going to the same therapist for 
since you were 27 and you're what like 77 now so good 50 yeah, years yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <fuck> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for that long maybe you know whether it's weekly we or monthly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i had to, i had to get one in um outside of that though is there any are, are there any other practices that that you use like do you do you meditate do you journal or do you uh take a walk every day is there anything that yeah. you have as kind I of a started, habit yeah so i started the walking thing a couple of months ago so i try and get up uh four or five days a week and just go for a walk before the day starts um nice. so usually like 7 to seven thirty. although this is when we're recording um and just do a 20 to 30 minute walk um which has been good. And then I started seeing a, I, I got a uh, physical therapist, right? So I'm doing, you know, an, an hour, three times a week, um, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays where he, you know, we do it all online on Zoom and, you know, and, and that's super helpful. And, you know, he's helping me with my diet and, you know, helping me understand food adjustments and seeing some success there. So that's been really good. Uh, so that's the physical side. Um, meditation, I have done, although I've stopped meditating probably in the last three or four months through no reason other than um, I think I just got burned out on it. I did it for a good two years, almost every day. Um, and and so I just felt like I needed a break from it. And I recognized that that's okay. Like it's there. And for two years, I, I've now re, I don't know if rewired, right? I've, I've grown to accept how that has helped me and ever since then and there's a there's a greater sense of calm inside of me internally and that's been super supportive and helpful so I've, I've reworked on that and I probably need to get back into it but again you know as I'm making different adjustments in other parts you know I, I'm you can call it substituting one for the other you can call it you know at some point you know my walks in the morning or my time whether I'm listening to a book or just thinking so that's a little meditative um so it just you know those are the main things I've been doing. So. Yep. Yeah. That's great. That's great for folks to just understand and maybe try to pick up some of those if they feel right or, or try different mm -hmm. things. Um, I want to make a pivot here to, like I mentioned a thing, some, some things that may be more tactical from a sales standpoint um, for, for folks that are listening. So um, I know that right now you're what, you know, the main thing that you're doing is, is kind of this five week training program. And I know a big thing that you talk about is, you know, earning the right to ask certain questions. I think you got your earn the right shirt on under yeah. that sweater. Yeah, so that's, uh, that was not planned. No, but It's not a sweater, dude. Old men. What is, what is, what is that? <laughs> a zip up, whatever. Yeah, it's a zip up. Like it's a non hoodie hoodie, right? With the warrior. Yeah. So <laughs> I call everything a sweater. Um, but you talk about, you talk about earning the right. So can you can you explain what you mean by that? Like how, how as a salesperson, you know, do I earn the right to ask certain questions to, yeah. to a customer or prospect? Yeah. So this, and this is something I train on and I think it, it goes way beyond sales, right? Like we have to earn the right to have these conversations. Um, and I know there's enough dating analogies out there, but you know, you don't go on a first date and start asking questions about, you know, your, you know, tell me about all your exes, right? You kind of have to earn the right to know someone's history. Um, and I think that that's, that's a part of sales is you've got to understand why they're at this stage and phase more than just what their current pains are. Um, and I think that's a really, really valuable point so much so that I've never said it before and I'm going to write it down. So, um, but that, that's what you're doing in sales, right? You're earning the right to understand their history and their pain. 
And, and so that's what we teach. And we try to teach people how to have a very simple, um, open, honest dialogue about the conversation they're going to have that it may or may not be a good fit. Go ahead and say that within the first two minutes. Um, and that way nobody's wasting time. And so for me, I want to make sure that we've earned the right to ask those questions to determine if it is a good fit for everybody. Now, underneath that, there is this ability to kind of go, is this worth my time as a salesperson to go chase this? Because I don't want to chase maybes. But on the other side, you know, the customer doesn't want to be chased, right? You know, you know, like I don't know of any relationship that works well when someone keeps chasing anybody. Um, and so I think that's the piece of, of where we're talking about, you know, earning the right. So first you have to do that. So understanding the psychology of human behavior and how humans just makes decisions, whether it's, you know, $100,000 in software or hardware or buying a car or buying a TV or buying a, you know, a sweater, Tom, <laughs> um, you still go through the same decision-making process. And so teaching people that and then teaching the tactics on how to get there is what we focus on. And it becomes a very natural conversation. It becomes very humanistic. It becomes um, much easier to navigate that deal. And it's not so much about, you know, you're never navigating the closed one. You're just navigating the closed, to close, close this deal. And if it's lost, then that's okay. Cause now you can go focus on the ones that you can win. So, um, you know, I wrote something the other day about chasing the dragon of a closed win. Well, you're kind of chasing the wrong dragon, right? Let's, let's just chase the dragon of closing it so I can move on. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're not. And we yep. chase the wrong dragon. Um, so that's, that's what we teach. And we, you know, obviously because of COVID, we revamped it instead of a day of training. It's now five weeks of training and reinforcement. We spend two hours a day for the first week, Monday through Thursday, um, in micro sessions, right? So that you can learn in little bits. Each day, each next day, we can spend five or 10 minutes seeing what's resonated, um, then we go on to the next round of, of strategies and, and mostly tactics. We're very tactical in our training. We don't want to talk about theories and it becomes very customized in the sense that it's going to be based on your sales process and your sales customers, not some theory that Richard's tried with some other customer. Like I, I don't talk about that. We talk about your customer. So we do a lot of role playing and real playing with your customer stories so that it becomes ingrained and sticks. And so then each week after that, um, for the next four weeks, we spend about 30 to 45 minutes with the management team and then another 30 to 45 minutes with the sales team, just reinforcing all this stuff so that it can, it can go well for everyone. So, so what would, what advice would you give to someone that's, whether they're a BDR or an AE, um, and they're, you know, making calls and they're not asking the tough questions, right? Maybe they're nervous to, uh, to try to get that, you know, close to the next step. Maybe they're nervous mm -hmm. to ask if that person's boss should be involved or where the budget sits or whatever mm -hmm. it is that is that big question of that call. And either they're not asking it or they're just kind of tiptoeing around it and just mm -hmm. don't have the confidence. Um, given that you're the, you're the question guy, you want to be able to ask those direct questions to point to, yeah, is this going to be closed one or closed loss? Either way, let's, you know, move in the right direction here. Um, what, yeah. would, what advice would you give to someone that's maybe a little skittish there? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, through the training, you, you go through a respect contract so that you can acknowledge those things. But then there's, there's definitely some wording that I change around. Like it's never about budget, right? I don't ever talk about that. It's about commercial terms. 
And I think that you can look, you know, the commercial terms imply that there's value when it's budget, you've been commoditized, right? So mm. stop using that B word as the, as, as your, as, as a negative and, and look at it as a positive and because it's going to show value that you're going to pay me for X and you're going to get Y, which equals Z. So that's the really important piece of this. Um, so, you know, you can change those phrases to commercial terms, right? You know, hey, Tom, you know, I think it's time we talk about commercials or commercial terms, right? And the easiest way to talk about those things is to send it in a meeting invite, but more importantly, in a, in a meeting, in a, an agenda email. Hey, Tom, so the day before, two days before, or, you know, even after a call a week ago, when you send your post-meeting email, hey, our next conversation, we're going to talk about commercial terms. So to a certain extent, you're sending it in writing, which makes it less intimidating for you to talk about it there um, because they know they need to talk about commercial terms. Um, in terms of a, a qualifying authority, right? It's not really about who has the budget or, or who that person is. We all know that there's some finance person who's really the final decision maker, some boss, but more importantly, there's a decision-making committee. And so the question becomes who's affected by this decision, not who's gonna sign off on it. You'll figure out the sign off, right? But asking it in a more, um, I don't know if the word gentle is right, but less guarded way, you learn more and you're using open-ended questions in both of those situations, right? You're, you're leading yep. the customer, you're nurturing the customer through the, through the decision-making process instead of sort of trying to, you know, act like a child and not upset mommy and daddy, right? So those are the kinds of things we teach. And, and those are the things that I think, you know, again, this is, you know, this is nothing earth shattering. It's just sort of like these different changing your own frame of reference to understand what you're truly doing. Again, it sounds therapeutic. Um, so you can recognize where they are and then make an adjustment and it works all the time, right? Who's affected by this doesn't always tell you who's going to make the decision, but it's going to tell you who says no. Right. Yep. And it's going to let you know that, oh, we already know that there's a committee. Right. So, you know, I can say to something like, hey, Tom, you know, most people I talk to, Tom, you know, there's usually like some committee that sort of has to get the buy in on this. And I'm not sure if that's how it works or if it's really with you, but who else is just affected by this decision? So if I know that there are more people affected, then I can decide if I want to ask if they want to be invited. Right. But then I'll start to focus on the process. So, Tom, you're going to take this back to the committee. You know, what do you think some of the people in the committee are going to say? Who's going to be the, the, you know, the party pooper? Tom, what do you think they're going to want to ask? Who's going to be the one who really loves this? And what are they going to ask? Because I want to make sure when you go back to the committee, Tom, that, that you look good. I don't want you to go waste their time. Like they, they're not going to like that. That's not good for you. So what are those people going to say? And, and I think that you can shift that conversation fairly easily to understand the decision-making process versus the authority of the person who's going to finally sign off. That'll continue to, to evolve and you'll begin to learn it. But ultimately that's that's how I see it. Yeah. And it's it all goes back to like the quality of your questions equal the quality of your answers. You're not gonna, they're not just gonna open up that information around who's gonna be the party pooper, who's gonna be the person that's the advocate until you ask the question and do so in a in a tactful way that it's not like, hey, who's your boss? You know, it's uh it's trying to massage it and trying to ask the right questions to, mm -hmm. to get that info out. Yeah. And it's not manipulative, right? It's just asking in, yep. a, in a way that, that doesn't feel threatening to people 
so that they're more comfortable sharing that with you. And if you've done your job and you know, you've earned the right to ask these questions, then you're going to be all set. Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. Well, where, I know we we're at about time here. Uh, where can the people find you where, if they want to connect with you, if they want to learn more, uh, either about your consulting or just check in on what's on your mind on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking. Um, Easiest place is probably LinkedIn, but you can always email me, Richard at rharris415, Richard at rharris415. And I'm also the crazy guy who gives out his real cell phone number, 415-596-9149, 415-596-9149. Let me know you, you, you know, you can text me, you can call me, you can, you know, whatever you want to do. And I'm happy to chat with you. So phone number, email, and LinkedIn are the easiest ways. So I appreciate it. Really quick, I saw you put that out on a post the other week, and some guy commented, and he's like, "Hey, thanks for grabbing twenty minutes." So he called you. I forget. I, you know, I'll, I'll find his name maybe and bring him up in the intro. Uh, but he he called you and you chatted for twenty minutes and you helped him with some sort of deal, right? I mean, this yeah, is the real thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's end of the month, <laughs> end of the quarter. Why wouldn't I try and help other folks? You know, it's it's too hard not to do that. It's too easy to not try to give your time to people, right? for lack of a better phrase. So yep. um, it's very easy to give your time to other people. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's Sales karma. Easy. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the karma. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, everyone go check out Richard on LinkedIn and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, Tom. Thank you so much for checking out that podcast. I hope you saw value, uh, whether you're you know working out right now or doing the dishes or, um, you know, laying around the couch, whatever you're doing right now while you're listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found some value. If you did, the only thing that you can do to really help me out is to share this podcast with a friend, share it on social media, and please subscribe wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it is, and leave a review on Apple if that's where you're listening. That, that's what helps us to spread reach, helps us to get better guests uh, like the one that you heard just now, um, and to give you as much value as possible. So connect with me. Uh, LinkedIn, Kamalemo, uh, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Tommy Tahoe, and subscribe, leave a review, and make it a great day. Peace. Thank you so much.